I'm going to invite Matt and Tara up to read our passage from the 23rd chapter of Luke. Go for it. All right. Our reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. There was also an, an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thanks, Matt. I said in the uh, Oak Church email that most of this room did not get, that I really connect with this passage uh, largely from my extensive acting experience in the 1997 uh, passion play for Our Lady of Lords Catholic Parish in Daytona Beach, Florida, in which I played the good thief. <laughs> Sister Monica really appreciated my, the passion I put into it during our cast party afterwards. But uh, it also made me kind of take umbrage a little bit when I was reading in some of the uh, commentaries or devotional material, and, and uh, one of the commentators was, was really uh, keen to, to state that Jesus is not very fastidious about the company he keeps. You know, that, 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 that kind of tore me up. But in this passage that, that Matt just read from Luke's Gospel, it's important for us to, to keep an eye on who Jesus is with, not just in his life, but also in his death, the company he keeps. Luke spent 23 chapters leading up to this telling tales about Jesus hanging with tax collectors and sinners, eating with them and getting in trouble for partying with them. Uh, John's Gospel talks about him meeting with religious elite in secret. We hear stories of the diseased and desert, disturbed women of ill repute, servants occupying the state that would eventually execute Jesus, all drawn to Jesus and Jesus spending time with them. And now in his death, in his final moments, he's among two criminals hung on a cross. Luke calls these um, criminals, the, the Greek word is kakurgon, which is Greek for no good rotten scoundrel, pretty much. Evildoer. Last week, uh, we started our Lenten uh, series on these words, and, and Dr. Begbie um, was here and, and spoke about, the, about Jesus um, praying to God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing, even as he was being executed by them, by us, and, and he, he um, defined the cross as that place where sin and, and hurt and that recycling violence goes in but doesn't come out. Throughout the next several weeks, we're, we're going to keep trying to hear from the cross, to hear Jesus' words, to hear them as an emphatic answer of grace to, to the people around him. Today we'll also hear the words of, of, or we have heard the words of these two thieves, and I think the, their words are also important. So the, 
Have you ever noticed in, in most Christian churches there's, there's a cross? Just one cross? Uh, I found it interesting when one of the, the commentators said, you know, there, there sh- shouldn't ever just be one cross on the hill because the Christian drama demands that there's, there's two other crosses, two other people uh, responding in Jesus to two very different ways. And we're going to talk about these ways today. The first, uh, the first thief says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This is the way he responds. And he accuses Jesus. He accuses the Messiah. He refuses to see salvation. First, just a little side note. When we say good thief and bad thief, those are kind of silly designations to say bad thief or good thief is kind of a, you know, paradox. But these words for the quote-unquote bad thief, these are easily our words. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. These are words of despair. The like ordinary, normal despair, not like the cancer despair or the, the really important types of despair, but like the normal, everyday, ordinary, ordinary despair of our lives. Frustration is hidden inside of these words of accusation. Sometimes our despair gets dressed up as sarcasm, right? We're really sarcastic people around here. And we're sarcastic towards God, too, in the same way. Maybe we, we fear, I think it's all based in fear. We fear that God's not strong enough. Or maybe we have been brought up or somewhere along the road had our picture of God tell us that God's not even good enough. Or maybe he's not even there at all to save us. Save yourself and us. At least that this bad thief, at least even in his mocking and ironic tone, he asks for salvation from Jesus. There's, Luke's gospel is so ironic in this that often the worst people say the best and most accurate things, even if they don't mean them. Too often we don't even do Jesus that dishonorable honor of asking him to save us. When we come to the cross and we, we strive to, to know it well enough and to be there long enough to start looking through the cross, seeing our world through the lens and filter of Jesus on the cross, we learn to deal and we learn to struggle and constantly ask what we just sang a minute ago to to have the vision and the courage and imagination to see God saving us through suffering, through what looks like failure, or absence, or poverty, or hurt, persecution, pain. That's why Paul was able to write in 1 Corinthians that the cross is a, a stumbling block to the Jews because it doesn't look like the salvation they're expecting. And it's utter foolishness to the Gentiles. But this thief, um, probably rightly so, if, if you take in all the evidence, was, was, was probably right to, to not sense much of a future, to just grasp at straws. While the other thief, though, sensed a future. Now you can put those words up. And after this kind of 
back and forth dialogue and this correction. It's so amazing, the story of one thief, you know, kind of looking around Jesus, correcting the other thief of, of, of something he said. The other thief realizes there's a future. Jesus' future, a king and a kingdom. His only shot at a future, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Weirdly enough, he recognizes salvation when he sees it, even if it looks really weird. And then he, he asks to be remembered, to be remembered. When I read this, I, I wondered, you know, could this, could this be, are we making this out to be a little more than it is? Could this just be like jailhouse religion, you know, that say there's no atheists in foxholes, maybe there's, there's no non-Christians on a cross, you know, when you're dying. You know, even today, there's, there's a woman in Georgia, and she's on death row, and she's scheduled to be executed tonight. In 1998, she, she got her boyfriend to kill her husband, and now she's going to die for it by lethal injection. But it's strange because there's all these people coming to her side saying, don't execute her. She's changed. She's, she's found Jesus, and, and if, when she talks about it, she... She says, I was looking for hope, and I found Jesus. So Kelly Gissendonner is now getting uh, letters, and is getting vouched for by famous theologians and Christians and priests. Um, we, we wonder if, if, if her, her speech from, from death row is, is not a little like, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It puts away any illusion of innocence. This good thief recognizes that Christ is not like him or his colleague. And so he just makes a really simple request, a humble request. Jesus, remember me. Can I have a seat at the table? Can I have the crumbs from your table? He asks for a future. He asks to go where Jesus is going, to be a part of what Jesus is doing, building his kingdom. This is pretty silly, right? For a man on the cross to have a future. You see, he came to realize somewhere in, in the pain that he was in, excruciating pain of being hung out like a piece of meat. You know, we, we romanticize the cross, but really, like, this is public execution to um, kind of scare off would-be crooks or to make a statement about how powerful Rome was. It's not too unlike lynchings in Jim Crow South. But even in the midst of all this, he's able to see that Jesus was not being ended. Jesus was somehow starting something. And there was this small glimmer of hope that he would be able to kind of live on and be a part of that, that he'd be a part of a better memory than he had at the moment. You see, that thief, really all those thieves, really any thief, would be purposefully forgotten. That's one of the greatest proofs to Jesus being real and who he said he was, is that he lived on in the resurrection, but also in the church and his followers. These movements get squashed by death. But Jesus wouldn't be purposefully forgotten. These thieves were, were, were faced with that prospect. Their families would rather pretend they didn't even exist than kind of carry on that memory. 
that shame of how they ended, that, that their death would be the product of pretty lousy lives. But then that thief recognized his salvation in Jesus. He saw grace, and, and an easy definition of grace is making a way where there's no way. He asked Jesus to remember him. This kind of smacks a little bit of when um, James and John are arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. But the, the, again, the irony here is that this guy isn't even with Jesus. He's not even a part of Jesus' movement. He's asking for a part in Jesus' kingdom. It's kind of desperate, right? It's a desperate bet. It's like pushing an IOU into the middle of a table as your poker marker. It's a Hail Mary. But it's also that desperation that allowed him to, to make that request in the first place. He knew how dismembered he was, how torn apart his life was and his body was becoming on that cross. All the things that we're dismembered by, torn apart, separated physically or emotionally, sin dismembers us. Politics and religion and hate and race dismember us. Even this week, a, an internet picture of a golden white dress dismembered people in my own family. And it was golden white. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. But he would now be remembered, put back together, made whole, a sign and an instrument of the shalom that Jesus' kingdom was bringing, brought back into relationship. This remembering is, is I like to imagine like a word, kind of like a fancy word, like atonement. At one meant being made one and whole again. As much of a recovery as a discovery. When I was looking through this, I, I came across this um, just kind of writing of Frederick Beekner, and if any of you have read Beekner, he just writes so beautifully. So I'm going to kind of quote at length because I, I can't say it better than he did, but he talks about this kind of remembrance and why it's so important and why it's our prayer. He says, when you remember me, it means that you have carried something of who I am with you, that I have left some mark of who I am on who you are. It means that you can summon me back to your mind even though countless years and miles may stand between us. It means that if we meet again, you will know me. It means that even after I die, you can still see my face and hear my voice and speak to me in your heart. For as long as you remember me, I am never entirely lost. When I'm feeling most ghost-like, it is your remembering me that helps remind me that I actually exist. When I'm feeling sad, it's my consolation. When I'm feeling happy, it's part of the reason I feel that way. If you forget me, one of the ways I remember who I am will be gone. If you forget, part of who I am will be gone. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, the good thief said from his cross. There are perhaps no more human words in all of Scripture. No prayer we can pray so well. 
No more human words in all of Scripture than Jesus, remember me. A prayer that we can pray really well. In a few moments, we're, we're going to come to this table and share this remembrance meal that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, and Mark will lead us. But um, how we're going to do it is a little special, and you can see some of the inscriptions uh, that, that we did last week, things that we, we hope to bring to and leave at the cross. So you'll be invited to come forward and to receive from yourself and take your time, kind of bask in the shadow of the cross, leave a stain, a mark, a fear, something burdening you that you don't need to carry away from that cross, something that you want Jesus to hold for you. And then uh, we'll go from there and, and, and pray together um, as, a, as a reconciled congregation. But the, the meal, the remembrance meal, is that, that dynamic life of, of being brought into relationship with Jesus, fed by his body, broken and poured out on the cross, and knowing that salvation is being made part of Jesus' body, being made part of what God's doing, this kingdom that's coming. And finally, we get to Jesus' answer to all these words. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That truly, it shows up throughout all the Gospels, and it's literally, amen, a punctuation point. Amen, be with me in paradise. The thief just made some strange, subtle, but huge transition. That transition that Paul talks about when he says, I've been crucified with Christ, not beside Christ, not, you know, in spite of Christ, not alongside of Christ, but I've suffered and been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's really tempting in these words of Jesus to get really hung up on paradise, trying to imagine that there's countless books written on this and who's in paradise and who's not and where it is and what it is, but don't be distracted by that. Paradise is not the goal. I repeat, paradise is not the goal to these words. The aim is intimacy with God. With is the word. Paradise is the, the location, the, the state of union and reunion with God. The garden was where God and man walked together. The garden city, the new Jerusalem coming down, will be when the bride and bridegroom reunite. I wish Rochelle was here today because talk a little bit about Richard Foster. I, he, he talks so much, and his colleagues, Dallas Willard or Jim Smith, talk so much about that with God life, that the Bible shows us what this with God life is and how it works, that it leads into a process of transformation, walking with God. It's not a matter of religious beliefs or behavior, but it's dynamic. It's a pulsating, dynamic life. 
and the cool thing about this story is we don't even get to see that transformation. <laughs> it it kind of guards us against, you know, again, saying who deserves God's grace or who doesn't because God does it in this story. Jesus pardons this man sight unseen because this man comes to be with Jesus. This dynamic, pulsating, relational life, it's lived in response to Jesus' offer, be with me. And it arcs. It arcs from a tree, through a tree, and to a tree, from Eden's tree, through this brutal tree on Golgotha, to the renewed tree of life in paradise. I know you guys from Gathering Church are studying uh, Genesis. I don't think you're there yet, but that tree of life in Genesis. It says, the Lord made all kinds of trees grow, and out of the ground trees, they were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then in this story today, we, we find this brutal cultural instrument. The tree was hammered and twisted into an instrument of public torture, but somehow hints at and evidences that death can still give way to life, something that we don't know very well. And then finally, that tree of paradise in Revelation 22 says, the angel showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Perhaps the most astounding part is not the paradise part, but the with me part. That despite all the evidence, the obvious evidence to the contrary, that Jesus is is winning on the cross, achieving something for this good crook. God is bringing about a kingdom. Eden is being reimagined and reformed. Salvation is being wrought by suffering, even by what doesn't even look like salvation. And this thief puts away any illusion that he's either beyond saving or that he could save himself and he, he simply just turns to Jesus for a future, a really uncertain future. He turns to Jesus. This is what Jesus has been doing in the whole gospel though, right? From that chapter, chapter 4 mission statement and it's kind of Oak Church's mission statement. It starts out, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, release to the prisoners, sight to the blind, freedom to the captives and the year of Jubilee, to even Luke 15 where we can see the thief as this found sheep, that coin that God searched for and found, that lost son showed up on his father's doorstep. This, this thief experienced this change of mind, this repentance. But unless we, we try to instrumentalize it or, or make it into an equation, this story shows us that repentance doesn't work like that. It's not a slot machine. That forgiveness and healing even precedes repentance. That we're forgiven long before we even repent. 
Luke tells it, shows us that, kind of demonstrates that, and telling stories about Jesus healing the ear of the high priest's servant, or healing the relationship between Pilate and Herod, even as Jesus is going to his death. Or last week's words, forgive them, for they don't know even what they're doing. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And that repentance steps into that. The thief's recognition of salvation and his repentant plea, it steps into Jesus' forgiveness and steps into paradise, into a with-God life, into eternal life. I think that's the question we go from here with is, is will I step into God's forgiveness? If I have done that in the past, will I continue to do it? If I haven't ever done that, will I do it? Will I enter this kind of kingdom coming existence, this eternal life, anticipating this garden city of paradise? I'm going to pray and then um, invite a uh, us all into a time of, of conversation and confession before God. Then we'll, we'll join together to corporately confess together and then, and then uh, meet at this table. So pray with me, please. Father, we confess that we're complicit in killing the author of life that you forgive us even before we know we need it. You promise us and prepare us a place with you in paradise. Help us step into that forgiveness in small ways and in, in personal ways and that we haven't forgiven others and can't fathom being forgiven by you in ways that we need to seek forgiveness from others or seek forgiveness from you. Father, be with us. It's the best we can ask for. You be with us and that we somehow be with you. Father, over this next couple minutes, help us listen well, help us be honest, disconnect us from our worries and um, anything that distracts us from spending some time with you. And we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for making a way where there is no way, and above all, for your son, his cross, and his resurrection. Amen.